Well, tonight we are in a strange position. For those who weren't there, the last time we met, we had just finished Psalm 23, end of August. We were looking ahead to our launch in in October 4th, and we're going to start a series on Ecclesiastes, so... What are we going to do during our two meetings in September? That's the question I asked myself towards the end of August. So I prayed and I thought, what better study for a church plant than defining what a church is? And then focusing on the mission of the church. So I pray that as we go and meet tonight and in two weeks, these two sermons will help us focus on what is important in the church. What is important to focus in the beginning of this church? With that said, let us turn our attention to Matthew 16, 13 through 20, our focus on the centralization of the church. So in these verses, the very first recorded time, Jesus used the term church. The Greek term is ekklesia, technically means gathering or a group of people coming together, but it's generally used in religious contexts. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament is actually The term ecclesia is used to describe gathering in the synagogue. But in this term, the centerpiece of this conversation with the disciples is revealed. It's important to note in verse 18, Jesus claims ownership of the church. He says, it is my church that I will build. What we'll find here is that whether... Where the other religious institutions have failed spectacularly, the religious institution grown by Jesus Christ will never fail and will in fact grow far beyond what anyone could imagine. Jesus shows how all of this will be done, how he will found it, how it will grow. He does this through this conversation with, this, with these disciples and he gives us three ways in which he'll grow it. The belief of the church, the foundation of the church, and the growth of the church. So our three points tonight, the belief, the foundation, the growth of the church. That's what we'll be walking through. 13 through 17, the belief of the church is where we are. In verse 13, Matthew sets the stage for Christ's teaching. Jesus and his disciples have stepped away from the crowds, from the religious leaders that have been dogging them over the last few chapters, gaining a little bit of peace, a little bit of reflection on all that has occurred And Jesus takes this opportunity to ask the disciples, well, ask them some questions. Does he want it to be philosophical? He could say, well, here it is. Here's Jesus Christ showing his strong Socratic method of questioning to lead them to a point. But we're Reformed Christians, we're confessional. Why would we say Socratic method when we can say something like, hey, here's Jesus Christ showing us a Strong indication of what catechism is. Taking a, strong, a student and teaching them through question and answer what exactly needs to be understood. So during this question and answer time, during this catechesis with the disciples, Jesus teases out the belief of the church. In one claim by Peter, we see the very heart of the church of Jesus Christ. But it takes a little bit of work to get there. In the question and answer time, Jesus gives us The claims of the church, he gives us the claims of the disciples, he gives us the source of all truth. So, under belief, think of three sub-points. 
Claims of the world, claims of the disciples, source of all truth. That's what we see in these two questions asked by Jesus and exclamation by Jesus. So in order for us to understand this belief of the church, we've got to first understand these three sub-points. The first question Jesus asks is, who do people say the Son of Man is? It's immediately obvious the question isn't out of Jesus' lack of knowledge of who he is or what his reputation is. He has shown time and time again throughout his ministry, he knows what people think of him or even what they're thinking about right at that moment. You can even see it further when he uses the title, Son of Man. He's emphasizing his earthly works. He's emphasizing the special character that's introduced in Daniel 7, this one savior of Israel. Jesus knows what people are saying about him. So why ask the question? He wants to know if the disciples have been paying attention. He wants to know, do the disciples know what the world thinks Jesus is? Because without that knowledge of the world, how would they be able to define their own beliefs? How would they be able to answer the next question coming out? The world thinks Jesus is, as the disciples say, a resurrected John the Baptist. John was put to death just a short time ago. They they think, well, maybe he's back. Well, maybe not that. They think he's Elijah, which is really just another way of saying he's John the Baptist because... Prophet Elijah was the voice in the wilderness leading to the Savior of all mankind. He was going to come back. John the Baptist became that voice in the wilderness leading to Jesus Christ. Then they said, well, maybe you're Jeremiah or some other prophet. Why Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah was a prophet of judgment. And Jesus Christ didn't exactly bring the best news to the world. It's often something bad's about to happen. I'm about to tear down this temple. Three days later, I'll build it up. There is coming judgment. But all in all, what it seems to say is the people thought Jesus was merely a prophet. They thought he was the voice of God. It's been 400 years since the last prophets. Finally, the prophets are returning to Israel. The voice of God has come back. Someone who is going to speak for God to tell us where everything is going wrong. And Jesus seems rather satisfied with the answer, jumps to his next question without really reacting to what they said. But before we go to see what the claims of the disciples are, we need to ask ourselves, what do we think the world says about Jesus? What does the world around us say Jesus is? Some make claims that the character of Jesus actually never existed at all. Either he was made up by religious leaders hundreds of years later, or he was kind of an amalgamation of different prophetical teachers during the first century collected together into one saying, and we've put a character behind all of the teachings. Some say he's just a prophet of God, a good prophet, but a prophet nonetheless. It's rather impressive to think that we have an example here of the Jewish people in the first century thinking, this guy is just a prophet. And yet it's tied almost directly to just 700 years later when Islam made its rise and they said, Jesus is just a prophet. Seems something they have in common. We also have some claim that Jesus is being just a good teacher. A Christian organization does a state of theology every two years and 
This past week, they released their poll to say what has happened over the last two years. Their poll said half of the U.S. thinks Jesus was only an excellent teacher. 52% is what they came to. Not only that, but 30% of self-proclaimed evangelicals claim the exact same thing. Jesus was only an excellent teacher. So what's the predominant view of Jesus Christ in our world, or at least in our country? Jesus is only a good teacher. So knowing what the world thinks about Jesus is helpful to contrast with the forthcoming view. It's helpful to know how to respond to the world, how to interact with the world. If we know that the world thinks Jesus is a good teacher and only a good teacher, we can use the teachings of Jesus to talk more about what he claimed to be. We can use the teachings of Jesus to show his ethic of being good or smart or philosophical cannot be separated from his miracles, his claims of walking on water. We can't be separated from his death on a cross. It can't be separated from his resurrection three days later. We can't take one character and split it in half. It doesn't make sense. So who do the disciples claim Jesus is? That's our next step. Jesus asked them a very personal question. Who do you believe that I am? Peter, being Peter, the strong-willed, often self-appointed leader of the group, steps forward to give his answer. It's important to know that often Peter, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, was the self-appointed leader and voice of the group. This is not just Peter making this statement. It's often a group of disciples who are confronted with a great teacher and they kind of gather together and they talk and they go, okay, Peter, you, you tell them what we think. He's their spokesman to state their beliefs. Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a statement. What a statement. Peter and his disciples go against the world. They go against the entire Jewish population around them. Just says this is what they are. This is what they think. And they go, no, 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 they're wrong. We've been hanging out with you long enough. We know. They don't think Jesus is a precursor to the anointed Savior. They think Jesus is the anointed Savior. Not only is he that Savior, but he is also the Son of the living God. Meaning, the disciples believe that Jesus is God. A direct heir is equal in power and relevance when speaking about rulers at that time. That's what the disciples are saying. Jesus Christ is God right in front of them. Maybe they don't fully realize it. Who knows? It's just, it's there. It's a bold claim by Peter and the disciples. Jesus' response is equally excellent. But before really jumping into what his response is, we have to again ask ourselves this question. Who do you think Jesus is? You've heard about the world. You've heard about what they view Jesus. Do you agree with them? Do you agree with the disciples? Do you think more needs to be said? Do you think there's some qualifications that should probably be added? Who do you think Jesus is? It's a big question. In fact, I would argue that it's probably the most important question of the last 2,000 years. Who do you think Jesus is? 
even if you come to the conclusion that Jesus is not real or that he wasn't an actual historical character, if you don't believe any of the miracles, all of that kind of stuff, you have to admit that this question has driven the world's culture for the last 2,000 years. If you don't want to say world, we can say Western world's culture, the ethic, everything. Talk to philosophers in the 1800s, they were all sitting there pushing against the ethic that's founded on the Bible. It is a question we all need to answer at some point in our life. Even if you dismiss it quickly, you still have it pop up in your head. It's not something we can't ignore. But moving forward, what is Jesus' response? Again, we're getting through these beliefs. Jesus' response to Peter and the disciples, he blesses Peter. He exclaims, blessed are you, Peter. Why? Because his claim of faith is founded on more than just opinion. It's more than on just the miracles he's seen in front of his eyes. It's founded on the source of all truth. That's how we get to the belief. Look at the second half of verse 17. After Jesus blesses Peter, he tells him, this idea did not come from you because of flesh and blood. See, Jesus is contrasting Peter and the disciples' view with the view of the religious leaders from the beginning of this chapter. Verses 1 through 4 of 16 have the religious leaders stepping forward to talk to Jesus and they say, give us a miracle. Show us some more signs. We need to find out who you are. Jesus dismisses them. Tells them, you don't even know. The only sign that's going to come upon you is a sign of Jonah. This is the world's view. They think, well, after feeding 5,000 people, that's great. I want to see more. Or, you know what? I wasn't there. I don't really believe that that actually happened. You say you walked on water. I, mm, no, I don't buy it. I didn't see it with my eyes. I didn't feel it. I, didn't, I wasn't able to stick my hand in the side. I don't buy it. But Peter and the disciples are different in this claim. This claim was not dependent on seeing the miracles of Jesus. It was not dependent on some proper philosophical or theological argument. It wasn't even dependent on Peter himself. Jesus says the claim was dependent on God in heaven. It was God who revealed the truth to Peter. This is how we get to the beliefs of the church. It's not founded on some heavy expectation for theology. It's not founded on some expectation of the world to contrast. It's not asking for sign after sign. It's not founded on someone named Peter or any of the 12 disciples. Even if their claim is true, the church's beliefs are founded upon the source of all truth. God in heaven. That is where we find it. That's where it says right there. The true belief that came out of Peter's mouth was coming from God. So what does the church believe at its very core? It believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, the one promised to come and take away the sins of the world. It believes that Jesus is the Son of the living God. It believes it is only through Jesus that we can find forgiveness from our sins. That's what this church here believes. It's what we're starting with. It's what I believe. It's what we as a church have as our center. That Jesus is the Christ. Moving forward. Because I'm taking way too long on these points. Second point, foundation of the church, verse 18. 
after learning about what the church of Jesus Christ believes, we move to the foundation of the church. And verse 18 of our text tonight is a doozy. For those of you who have had any history in the church, there is so much ink spilled over this verse, it's, it's almost intimidating to approach. But I have to take courage because we just said our beliefs are founded on God in heaven, so we have nothing to fear, right? Take courage. Here we go. Verse 18. Jesus says, after blessing, Jesus and, or after blessing Peter and telling him that this belief comes from God alone, he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Three aspects that define the foundation of the church. Right here in this verse. The foundation of the church is personal. Consists of people. And it's strong. Got it? The foundation of the church is personal. Consists of people. And it's strong. Those are the three sub-points. This verse has a number of different interpretations throughout time. They all try and work their way around the text as best they could. It's notoriously difficult to approach because of the Greek and as well as the possible Aramaic that's going on here. As we go through this, I'll try and address a few of these different interpretations. Hopefully we'll come to a good conclusion at the foundation of the church. So first, Jesus addresses Peter in a very personal way. He names him. He calls him Peter. Now the Greek of Peter is Petros. And the Aramaic is Kephas or Cephas, depending on who you are and how well you are dealing with seas. Both of these names in those languages mean stone. It can mean small rock, it can mean rocky hill, it can mean lots of different things, but generally it's about a rock. On occasion, when Jesus goes from Petros to, or Cephas or Kephas into on this rock, what the Greek translation of on this rock or rock in this point is using almost the exact same word. So Petros is masculine for Peter. Rock in Greek is Petros with an A-S. It's feminine. He had to switch it because that's the word rock. For the Aramaic, it's literally the exact same word. Kephas, Kephas. It's the exact same word. making it quite clear to me there's an allusion to Peter's name. Now there are interpretations that try and work around this idea. People take other passages where Jesus calls himself the stone that the builders reject, the stumbling stone, the cornerstone, amongst others, and they interpret this passage to say Jesus isn't speaking about Peter, he's speaking about himself. Upon this rock, and he's pointing his thumbs at himself. That's what I imagine whenever someone tells me this interpretation. This rock that I will build my church. If they don't want to do that, they kind of step around the idea. They say, well, Peter's claim, the belief that Peter declared in the previous verses, that's the rock that Jesus is talking about. This is the rock that Jesus will build his church upon. The beliefs of the church, that's where we will stand upon it. Again, it's not a bad interpretation. I appreciate it. It pushes against the obvious step, though, that Jesus is bringing up by using Peter's name. If Jesus had said you, or he'd said all of you, or y'all, or all y'all, maybe we could make that step. If some other pronoun was used, if he or something like that would help us to move forward. But in all the earliest texts, Jesus always uses Peter's name. He always names him. 
we have to take it to say that Jesus is stating that upon Peter, he will build his church. Now, let's take the step in the other direction. We've been hitting the Protestants pretty hard. We're going to go against the Catholics now. We have to unpack that idea because so many Protestant churches will push against that idea of saying we can't use Peter because the Roman Catholic Church says Peter is named Pope right here and now. He becomes the Pope. He is imbued with some kind of great power, power through the Godhead into Peter to allow him to rule the church. That's what they take through this passage, amongst other ones. I do not see that here. I'm sorry to the Roman Catholic Church, I just don't see it. What I see is that two chapters later after this passage, the disciples come up to Jesus, beginning of chapter 18, and they say, who is the greatest among us? If they thought Peter was the head of the church after just being imbued with power, why would they be arguing amongst themselves two chapters later saying, hey, who's the greatest among us besides Peter? Because Peter is the one who's got all the power. No, something more is happening here. If Jesus gives this personal claim to the foundation of the church, what can we say? What I think is Peter is acting as a foil for the disciples. He's acting as a foil for the people of the church. He's acting as a foil for all those past, present, and future who will be part of the church. The foundation of the church is personal. When Christ asks, who do you think I am? That is a personal question. When we step into the church, we are asked, if we believe all that, the other church, all that this church believes, will you submit to the authority of the elders? That's a personal question. And so each of us are taking that. But the church is also more than one person. The church is built on the foundations of people all agreeing that Jesus Christ is Lord. The foundation of the church consists of people. It's both personal and a collection of people. When Jesus tells Peter that he will build his church upon him, I am positive here. Christ is in his godhood thinking and looking ahead to Pentecost. And he's thinking of Peter, preaching the gospel to thousands. And they all come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. They're all there. But I'm also positive that Jesus is also thinking about Stephen, who's just seven chapters later, proclaiming Christ while being stoned. And he's thinking about Paul. And he's thinking about Timothy as they travel around preaching the gospel. And the many missionaries throughout the age, people sitting here in this building right now, I'm sure Jesus was thinking of you as well. The foundation of the church consists of every man, woman, and child that confesses Jesus as Lord. Peter gave us the first sermon after Christ's resurrection. Stephen was the first martyr. Paul took the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are the first PCA church in Cedar Rapids. Church is spreading all across the world, and the people who agree with Peter and the disciples all the way back 2,000 years ago are the foundation for the church to just stretch further. New planks being laid out. Now, please don't mistake me, we are not ones building this church. We are being used by the master builder. We aren't being used by the chief, we are being used by the chief architect of this glorious church. 
We like to take this passage and we like to think that the rock is the important part because it's argued so much. But really it's not. The important part is right after the rock. Jesus says, I will build my church. We are the stones of this church. We have been placed here by the builder to stretch this church further. People in this building right now are the foundation for this church and Jesus Christ will continue to grow it. There's one more piece of this foundation that we need to look at. As we have seen, it's personal through our decision to support it. It's also consisting of people as they gather together from Peter to the disciples to Paul. But the second half of verse 18, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I just lost my place. I'm sorry. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The strength of a building is not in the stones that make up the building but the architect that places those stones. I'll say that one more time. The strength of a building is not made up of the stones that make up the building, but the architect that builds it. Just as the beliefs of the church are not founded on Peter's claim, but rather founded on God as the source of all truth, so too is the security of the church founded upon the one who made it and grew it. If you look at the chief architects of many buildings throughout the world, those who take on earthquakes, who take on tsunamis. The old buildings made of strong stone will often crumble. But the smart architect will build buildings that can withstand the swaying of the ground and the surging of water. Each church begins and lives in a war zone. It begins and lives on a floodplain. It begins and lives on a fault line. We are in the midst of calamity and we are starting a church. We're being attacked on all sides. The enemy is Satan, the enemy is sin, the enemy is death itself. This is a foreign land that is being won back by Jesus Christ. And as he lays the foundation for a church, he lays each stone particularly. He's the master architect. He knows what is coming and he has prepared for it. His church will not be defeated by those who come against it. Sickness, political strife, riots, corruption from within, violence from outside, the church of Jesus Christ will not be defeated. The foundation has been laid and it will grow into a beautiful church because the Son of the living God is the one building it. Take comfort. At the beginning of a church, it is always scary. I'm horrified right now. But we have our beliefs founded on God. And we have a chief architect building us up. We have everything ready for us. Everything is prepped. And now we come to our last point, the growth of the church. Let's hope that this one's briefer. I think it is. Finally, we come to our last two verses of our study. Seeing that the church believes, seeing that the church has a foundation that is founded in Christ, we get to see how the church has grown. Before we go into this point, brief caveat. The growth of the church is a big topic, especially among church planters. There's many aspects. Lots of things can be emphasized. You can go all over the scriptures. This particular passage doesn't address all of those particular pieces. We have a first step in church growth. We have the bones of church growth here in this. We're not going to be addressing the culture, the sin within the culture, the people, how to talk to them. That's not what's going on here. We're going to build upon that, this idea that we set here, forward. Alright? With that out of the way, growth of the church is seen in three parts here. Again, three sub-points. I'm trying to be good. Three points, three sub-points each. Verse 19, 
we have the proclamation of the gospel, the discipline of the church, and the authority of the church. Three points for the growth of the church is founded in the proclamation of the gospel, the discipline of the church, the authority of the church. That's our three sub-points. Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The keys of the kingdom are a very common idea in Christian culture, but also actually in our modern culture. Though many of us don't actually realize how common it is. If you've ever seen a cartoon or a movie with a bearded man standing next to the golden gates with clouds all around it, that is Peter, and he's letting people in. Sometimes almost very literally, he's taking out a key and unlocking the gates to let people in. Sometimes it's a button, sometimes it's a weird lever, and then the floor drops and someone's going the other way. Either way, this is that common culture of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Peter, if we take that view, Peter is the one who's deciding who goes in, who goes out. You know what, honestly, the wider idea here placed by our culture isn't that far off from what Jesus is describing here. The keys of the kingdom of heaven are the ability to discern who can or cannot enter that kingdom of heaven. Now, it's often placed solely upon Peter because of a misinterpretation from verse 18. We see that obviously the terminology that Jesus is using here is binding and loosing. Now, at the time, the idea of binding and loosing was known within the Jewish circles as uh, a very high view of forbidding something or a very high view of permitting something, almost godly in its allowance. Binding is forbidding is binding is forbidding something, loosing is permitting something. So in this context, Jesus is telling Peter, he will forbid those from going to heaven or permit those from going to heaven, as I've been saying. But how exactly is this done? That's the real question. Is Peter just kind of making a decision? Does he have a big book that he kind of checks off things? Does he have some kind of gut feeling that really pushes us forward? Now, this ties us to the first and second markers, the first and second subpoints of the growth of the church. The proclamation of the gospel, that first subpoint, that's the first step in growth. In many ways, it's acting as both binding and loosing in the proclamation of the gospel. It's permitting and forbidding. How? Well, when the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is preached for the forgiveness of sins on a Sunday, something happens. Either someone accepts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, either through the agreement of what's being said or through an actual public declaration of faith. That's a good thing. Or someone is further cemented in their sins, meaning they stop listening or they stop caring about what is being said from the pulpit. People can't approach the gospel as if it's nothing. They can't just go, hmm, this is interesting. Whoa, look at this guy. He raises and lowers his voice, but it doesn't actually go that far. No. When the gospel is proclaimed, when Jesus Christ is said from a pulpit, you are forced to make a decision. You either tune it out or you listen to it. It affects you. It's one or the other. Either you are enlivened by hearing the gospel, you are hardened in your sin. And that's the first key. First key of the kingdom. When he makes this statement to to Peter, he says the proclamation of the gospel. It will either bring people in or it will send people out. You can see it every Sunday. You can see it in Bible studies. You can see it in Bible readings. You can find it in a conversation with a friend. It could happen right here in front of you right now. 
Now, the second key, second step in growth is the discipline of the church. And this one's tough because no one likes to talk about discipline, especially in front of people when you're starting a church. Now, where the proclamation of the gospel is the positive side, the discipline of the church is kind of the negative side. Two chapters after this passage, Matthew 18 is the famous discipline of the church chapter. It gives us steps on how to do it. If you really want to do it, go read and talk about it. Let me put it shortly. When a Christian sins and doesn't ask for forgiveness, rather they double down in their sins. They keep sinning. A friend, or even better, a church, steps forward and approaches this Christian. And they say, hey, you're sinning. You should repent. You should come back to the way of faith. You should step along this path. And if this doesn't work, the Christian can feel the discipline of the church. They can step under it. Now, it can look a lot of different ways. Maybe it's, you're not allowed to take the Lord's Supper this week. We're going to prevent you from doing it until you repent. Or maybe it's something as far as, say, you've claimed to be a Christian, but you're currently living in sin. You won't repent. We're going to have to ask you to leave this church. You'll be excommunicated is the proper terminology. This is a very difficult place to get to. And I take it very seriously. It's often done after a very long time, prayer and tears. I say it knowing one of my family members has actually gone through the full pieces of discipline in a church. But the church is called to bind and loose those around them. Please understand the discipline of the church is not to kick people out of church. The discipline of the church is to hope and pray to bring the Christian back to faith, to have them repent of their sins. Please, that's what we ask for. When the gospel is proclaimed, the hope is to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not to harden their hearts into sin, but it does happen. The same is true for discipline. The hope is to bring the people back to faith. Not to kick them out of the church, but it does happen. Now at this point, you may ask wisely, how does this grow the church? And that, I think, is a fair question. Preaching the gospel, obviously will bring people in. That's an obvious way of growing the church. Now, discipline is a strange one. How does that grow the church? Because it may not seem like a good way to grow a church. If someone walked in for the very first time into a church and they saw this guy very seriously, probably older, saying, well, we're going to be doing this today and talking about discipline, you may get the random person goes, wow, that church really takes it seriously. But most people are like, this place is creepy and weird. I won't be coming back. So how does it work? If someone claims to be a Christian and they start attending a church and they say, you don't need Jesus Christ to be a Christian. And that church allows that to be said. That church is going to shrink far faster than grow. In fact, it's going to abandon being a church altogether. Another example that may be a little bit more pointed. If a Christian commits a racially motivated hate crime and the church doesn't Say, hey, you should probably apologize. You should probably face the consequences of that action. And they just let the person continue to act normally in a church. A church has abandoned their witness. They've lost their foundation of beliefs. No discipline leads to an empty church. Maintaining the beliefs of the church, holding fast to Jesus Christ, that is how a church grows. 
If we become an open door for all beliefs, we can no longer call ourselves a church. Rather, we become a community center. We become a group of very nice people who like to gather around and talk about nice things and sing together. Finally, our last sub-point for the growth of the church. The authority of the church. Jesus has told Peter he has the ability to welcome or bar people from the kingdom of heaven. For some, this authority is placed solely on Peter, as I have said before. It says in the second half of the verses that what he binds on earth will be bound in heaven as though he is the one deciding this. His authority is placed there. And I only have like five paragraphs left, so I promise it's going to be quick. Let me tell you this. First, it's important to remember, Peter is acting as a foil for the disciples. He's acting as a foil for the church. He's acting as a foil for the leaders of the church. Peter isn't the sole authority. And all you've got to do is turn to Galatians 2 and see Paul confront Peter in sin for being racially motivated and not talking to Gentiles, only talking to Jews. And Paul confronts him for that sin and says, stop it. Gives him the first step of church discipline. That's the first. Second, it's not the church that makes these decisions and then heaven agrees with them. I know you're going to sit there and go, that's not what it says right there in the text. And I'll tell you this, the English translations are not helping any of us right here. The Greek syntax here messes, it's all messed up. All right? When Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, it actually means heaven has bound it and you will bind it also. I'll say that one more time. When Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, he actually means heaven has bound it and you will also bind it. Because the Greek syntax, the verbiage is future perfect. That's the huge thing if you ever want to be a syntax nerd, that's what you'll look into, future perfect. It essentially means that heaven will work through the church to accomplish its purposes. It's the whole push. Peter, the other disciples, Paul, the church throughout history, they will act in accordance to how God in heaven guides them. And they move as the Holy Spirit moves within them. As a church welcomes new members, as we're going to see in three weeks at our launch, we will have a group of people up here to become new members of Trinity Presbyterian Church. The church is responding to the work of the Holy Spirit. They aren't making decisions and declaring themselves correct. See, the authority of the church is found in God, not in man. And as we have seen throughout this whole passage, it always begins and ends with God. And here's where it will amaze you, because it occurred to me only until I was writing the third point. Look again at our three, three points, and I'll say it again. Jesus tells Peter that his claim of truth came from God in heaven. That's our first point, God the Father. Jesus then tells Peter that he will build his church. Jesus Christ will build his church from the foundation up. That's the second point. Finally, Jesus says through the Greek that heaven will work through the people of the church to grow. Put another way, the Holy Spirit will speak through the church to bind and loose all those on earth. The church is God's church. The Father defines the beliefs. The Son builds it. The Holy Spirit grows it. Trinity Presbyterian Church is a church that is being defined by the Father, built by the Son, and grown by the Holy Spirit. That's why we're called Trinity Presbyterian Church. I cannot wait to see what he will do with it. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son and for the Holy Spirit that continues to guide us. Lord, continue to pour out your grace upon this church. Build us up to be ones who wish to push forward the beliefs of this church. Be founded upon your Son and truly grow in the Holy Spirit. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.